And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on. And while Formula One is deep into the August break, there's still plenty going on with talk of Ferrari engine upgrades and arguments about accident damage, as well as the opportunity to take a look at the technical development war that has raged through the season so far. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to offer their unique insights are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, hello, Mark. Enjoying uh, enjoying your August break? I am, yes. Um, it's um, the, the, the weather's nice. Been getting out on the bike sometimes and um, been doing a lot of podcasting, actually. Yeah, there's a lot. We just can't stop talking. That's the problem. So uh, yeah, if, if you run out of voice towards the end of this one, that would be uh, that would be understandable. And uh, Gary, from what you've just been saying, it doesn't sound like you're having much of a break. You've got all sorts of projects on the go. Oh, I've always got a few projects. Yeah, I started to rebuild my my old uh, 1927 Erskine T50 Tour. Um, I've had it for about eight or nine years now, and uh, haven't done much to it. It all runs okay, but. Uh, it's time to sort of start working on it. So I've, I've been stripping down the wheels and getting the wooden spokes out of them and taking the paint off them. Somebody painted them grey. I want them back to wood. So but very, fairly marathon task to get to the spokes, to be honest, I have to say. But it's interesting. Different engineering altogether, but actually quite impressive engineering when you think it was 1927. Yeah, very, uh, very much going into the relatively early days, I guess. Uh, I guess there. So an, an interesting little part. I guess I presume you haven't really dealt with cars of that age before. No, not really. Um, it's nearly as well, nearly as old as me, or I'm nearly as old as that, whatever you like to call it. But you know, whenever you think it's a almost a hundred years ago, you know the um, the detail in the engineering is is quite impressive. So uh, yeah, for what it for what it is, um, I'm I'm very keen to get into it and sort of understand it a little bit more. Well, we expect you to have it up and running on F1 timelines. Now you've probably committed to it, so uh, you've got you've got a few months, and then uh, we're. You'll be behind if not, so we'll keep track of that. Uh, but there's there's plenty to talk about, as we said. So, Mark, should we start off with Ferrari? We know they've got some power unit upgrades after the break. What can you tell us about what it has planned? 
Yeah, well, the uh, Matea Bernato surprised us a little bit by that announcement. Um, we did a little interview, sort of um, just talking about the half season and just giving a sort of summary to a few of us. And um, he, he let slip that, yeah, they, they will in, be introducing a completely, well, not completely, but a new spec of power unit. Um, so when they introduced the 2021 power unit, uh, they obviously they, they don't tell you which... Uh, of the elements that you're allowed to change have been changed. Uh, so the, the six, there's the ICE, there's the turbo, the ERS H, the ERS K, the electronics and the battery. And they're all um, elements which uh, can be changed once, uh, upgraded once. Um, so we know pretty much that the internal combustion engine, the, um, and specifically the combustion chamber, uh, was changed with the engine that's been run so far but we don't know which of the other ones would would changed um so this was really just confirmation that they didn't change all of them that that some of those elements were the same as the 2020 engine so they could still have that um, ability to up, upgrade them in the next engine uh which will be post summer break um it, it's a sort of bit of a complication with the engine of Charles Leclerc if indeed the one that um he, he was involved in the accident in Hungary. Uh, is um, is dead uh, because uh, it means that uh, it, it sort of got run on complications of if it has to take the third engine early to replace that one, and it's of the new spec. That's that's his three engines for the season, and we've still got half the season to go. So yes, it's uh, it presents some logistical uh, challenges, I'm sure, but it's uh, also quite interesting in that um, he seemed to be quite uh, confident that it was a significant performance upgrade, and we've seen a, a them cut into a big deficit that they had last year. Uh, from that transition to the 2021 engine, um, it's it's a lot closer on power than last year's engine was, though it's still um, significantly off. And he talked about how far off they were in that half season to date. And it's by his calculation, it's seven tenths. Um, by mine, it's a bit less than that. But even whatever, he was saying it's. He assessed it as uh, 60% power unit, 40% chassis, that deficit. So uh, this is a significant chunk of that 60% we're talking about. So it'll be very interesting to monitor uh, the, the Ferrari's performance when it gets that new PU in it. And I guess, Gary, with the stakes being so high, because they need to get their power unit package up to scratch by the time the, the final homologations are done, that the last bits can be done on September the 1st, 2022. And then that's your lot for the for the following three years. So. Will that be a good indication of whether Ferrari is indeed on the right track with its power unit development? Yeah, I think it will be. To be honest, you know, they're they're um, it's a, it's a very f- fine line between understanding where your power unit deficit is and your chassis deficit is, and that sixty forty percent is is a, a nice number to sort of head into, I suppose. Um, I I don't I'm not quite sure that I see that quite as black and white uh, to be honest, because you've got to make sure that one doesn't affect the other. I mean, you can aerodynamically make the car better um, by just running the the cooling, less cooling, for example, but that affects the engine. So it's never never just quite as black and white as that. But oh, again, all these things about um, homologating the engines and what you're allowed to change this year 
prior to next season is is always very confusing because we never quite get to the under under underneath it all to understand what they're actually trying to achieve with it. You know, the the normally aspirated engine is just one one large unit, and there's a huge amount of work you can do inside of there. As far as combustion is concerned, and you know, just general design. But um, outside of that, then it's about deploying the energy you've got and harnessing the energy you, you're you're generating. So there's also a huge amount you can do there. So if they can find 25 horsepower, maybe maybe 30 horsepower uh, as a given sort of flat line at power advantage, then I think it'll put them in line with with you know the, the big end, the top boys. So yeah, it will be an indication. And we're going to circuits where where horsepower is is. Uh, an important part, you know, Spa, Monza, these sort of circuits, they don't, horsepower definitely as a, as a dividend. And obviously for Ferrari, I think they'd like to show better in Monza this year than they did last year. So uh, it's a big push for that, I'm pretty sure. So interesting to see when they do introduce this engine and, and how hard they can run it, you know, initially. But it should be an indication for the next three years as to where we're heading with it. Yeah, the strategy for the timing is quite complicated because as well as the Leclerc problem, Science had a new power unit on Saturday in Hungary, didn't he? So he's kind of drifting into the, the set to have a penalty at some point. I think they're both, as it stands, potentially have an MGUK they can still introduce, but it depends. We don't know what damage there is from uh, uh, from from the clerks. <laughs> so it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because you'd think Monza would be a great place to do it, but then you're going to get grid penalties. I think it would all be very interesting, to be honest, if all the teams would agree to do their penalties at the same race meeting. You know, because every, I'm sure before the season's out, everybody will have to suffer some penalty somewhere. So it'd be great to see it all, and then suddenly that would give the FIA a bit of a headache to work out the grid. <laughs> that's that's like those easy easy boarding tickets where you, you early boarding where you pay ten a ten or more to get on. I always yeah. think it would be great if you just got all the passengers together and just said, "Let's all buy a ticket, and then let's all let's all complain because we're not the first on." <laughs> I must admit, Gary, you you sat in a lot of technical meetings. I'd quite like to see the the response you'd have got if you'd proposed that. I imagine you'd have created some great arguments. Well, I know, as you say, everybody wants to get the upper hand on everybody else. But uh, just from a spectator point of view, it'd be it'd be good to see what would how it would unfold. To be honest, but yeah, I don't think anyone would ever agree to anything as silly as that. But you know, it would be a way of demonstrating the fact that you know three engines for the season, the twenty three race season is is pretty heavy going to be honest it's pretty tough for anybody to achieve that so it might be a way of demonstrating to the to the fia the powers to be that maybe it would be better to have four engines for the season or something of that nature but who am i to question that yeah a little bit of margin might make life a little bit easier well i'm sure we'll we'll touch on ferrari in this next section but gary you've been looking in detail at the performance patterns across the end of last year and then this year so which teams have impressed you most in terms of the gains made and also which ones have uh, impressed you the least I guess yeah I mean it's always difficult because um, we're what 11 races into the season there's another 12 to go probably um, <clears throat> so it's always it's always difficult to see who uh, came out best between the end of last season and this season you know as we know the cars were theoretically more or less the same aerodynamic developments were allowed and then the regulations for the floor brake ducts etc were 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 uh, instigated so the teams had to react to that more than anything else um and i think you know whenever you look at it uh over the winter red bull did make some steps but at the end of the last season they weren't that far away from uh, from mercedes so 
Last year, Mercedes said they stopped development on the 2020 car very early, so they could concentrate on the 2021 changes. Um, and basically, you know, they went backwards. They're, they're just about the only team. Um, well, them and Aston Martin and Haas all went backwards that little bit. Whenever it came to their relative performance at the start of uh, of twenty twenty one, so there was a big uproar then about the, uh, the the high rate cars, the low rate cars, and how the FIA had scuppered Mercedes and and uh, as such Aston Martin with their pink uh, Mercedes. So you know that that was how the season started. Everybody else made slight improvements on the relative performance, but you know top of the top of the pile come the first race of of twenty twenty one was was Red Bull. Um, but it, it didn't continue like that, you know. That's the thing about it. Um, and if you look, you know, coming through to now, um, again, Red Bull haven't they haven't gone forward. They've been competitive at a lot of places, um, but they haven't they haven't developed their way forward. And and you know, uh, Mercedes have. So Mercedes have reacted to that situation and overcome some of their their losses. I think. You know, whenever we look at it, we talked about how you would uh, go about developing the, the new car, the cars for 2021. And I put a lot of emphasis into making that front corner of the underfloor work harder, the barge board area and that front corner of the floor, because the whole underfloor is one unit and there's a low pressure underneath that, that big flat floor area, sucking the car down onto the ground. It doesn't really care where the diffuser is. It doesn't really care whether the, the diffuser is at the back of it or at the side of it or where it is. You just want to accelerate the airflow as fast as you can um, underneath part of that, underneath that floor. And if you can, you know, accommodate it by having these two sort of front corner side diffusers uh, with all that barge board kit um, scavenging airflow out from underneath the floor, it means that the rear diffuser doesn't have quite as much work to do for the whole underfloor to have the same depth of, of low pressure under it. So uh, some teams got the direction sorted out in that very early. Um, I think Alpha Tori would be the one I'd sort of point at and say they, they they definitely got onto it, got onto that situation quite quickly. Uh, and McLaren um, and Mercedes didn't. So their update for Silverstone was more in that area to try and make the whole underfloor work as one and not rely on the diffuser quite so much. But so you know they have moved forward now. Whenever we look at the average performance, um, Ferrari. I mean, we talked about Ferrari there a little bit about their engine and. The average of their last four races of last year, um, Ferrari were 0.9 of a percent um, off being the best. And actually, if you take away Red Bull, who was the best, Ferrari were end up being 0.8 of a percent off the the ultimate pace. If you look at it right now, um, Ferrari are 0.8 of a percent off the ultimate pace. Um, but again, Red Bull aren't perfect; they're the, they're the best. Uh, so Ferrari are now point seven percent. So the difference in that, you know, six tenths, seven tenths, eight tenths of a second, or whatever it is. If you take all the races so far this year, as I say, Ferrari are about were about point eight percent off the end of last year, and they're now point seven percent off last year. I, I, they're more competitive, but they're more competitive, I think, because others have not done as good a job as opposed to them being that much more competitive. They've gained the fraction, but they haven't gained as much as it, you know, as it looks. It isn't a, it's just a light switch job. They, they haven't gone forward as much. Um, but in general, you know, it's, it's a bit sort of nip and tuck with the teams. Um, as I say, Red Bull haven't improved over this season so far. Um, Ferrari have actually um, lost a fraction over the season so far. Uh, 
Alpha Tori have lost a fraction over the season so far. Alpine have lost a fraction over the season so far. And the rest of them have gained a little bit over the season so far. So it's but again it's you know it's that point one of a percent. There's nothing too dramatic in there. And I it is about getting the underflow to work harder. That's that's the most important thing because of the regulation changes with this trimming the sides of the floor. Yeah, and the other point, I guess, with Ferrari is they've maybe given away a sliver of single lap performance to help their tyre management over the, over the year. And obviously, when we're talking about performance here, it, it's single lap qualifying pace because that's the most steady set of data we can, we can use. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, one team, Mark, that has been quite interesting is McLaren because we've seen quite a lot of tweaks on the McLaren, various different versions of the, the wider barge board package. They seem to be a team that has a pretty good handle on where they need to go these days. When you consider the disarray they were in a few years ago, I think it probably does speak well of how far they've come, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And the fact that they've gone their own way in so many uh, directions, um, the diffuser's a little bit different to everybody else's, their rear wing's a slightly different configuration to most, Um, and their developments are gone in a different direction. It suggests they're on their own path. They're not just... um, Blindly following what everybody else is doing, and um, they while they're doing that, they're um, they're, you know, they're coming up with a a car that's uh, regularly uh, the best of the rest, and it sometimes has even been able to challenge. Um, like we saw in Austria, it, it was able to ch- even challenge the, uh, the the front two in qualifying at least. Um, it has a very big DRS boost. I think that was the um, be, what was behind that particular track suiting it so well. Because um, so much of the percentage of that lap at the Red Bull Ring is um, DRS and qualifying, but even so, it's uh, uh, yes, I think that's probably for me um, of, of uh, outside of the, uh, the the top two. I think the uh, the McLaren has been the the most interesting and um, most intriguing one. It's an interesting point there you mentioned about the DRS boost. I don't think we've talked about this on podcasts really before, so it's worth Gary addressing. We do see different levels of of DRS efficiency, drag reduction uh, across the different teams. Obviously, the the aperture that's open, it's the same size for everyone. Can you just explain why we do see differences in terms of the the performance gain relative to each other that they get, depending on the the, the DRS zones and the and the, the track sensitivities and the car characteristics? Well, part of it really is obviously the rear wing design itself. Um, the, the, if you've got a longer main plane, for example, and a shorter flap you will theoretically be able to generate more downforce when it's when it's shut. But when it's open, you'll you'll um, lose less drag because the, the the airflow is still attached to the main plane profile. Um, and that's acting like a wing in its own right, I suppose you could call it. So if you've got a, a slightly longer um, flap and a shorter main plane by just a little bit, even though the gap between the two is the same, you will reduce the, the drag by more, but you won't be able to generate the downforce that the other one would do when it when it's closed. So so it's a balancing act between the two. It's about what downforce you want to have when the DRS isn't in use, and what uh, what drag you want to reduce it when the DRS is in use. And some tracks, as Mark just said, Austria, for example, it's you know the the uh, the, the slow corners are always fast, but there's a majority of slow corners there between um, between fast straights. So you know you you jo- you link that up, and you find you can make more ground if you have more more drag reduction uh, during when the DRS is open and you don't lose quite as much whenever it's uh, it's closed. So it's a balance on that between the circuit characteristics and it's a balance on that between what the team believes in as well. 
you know, so it's always difficult. Um, again, you can have run into problems with the with the rear wing uh, reattaching when it's shut if you have too big a um, too short a main plane and too big a flap. So again, it's it's the philosophy that the teams go through. It's just a balancing act between one thing and another and another. And of course, the DRS will remain a thing next year. It's in the 2022 rules, although the hope is that in the longer term it can be dropped if those regulations work as hope. But yeah, development war has been interesting so far. It's going to wind down a bit in the second half of the season, but there still should be plenty to come after the August break. Well, Mark, we've looked a lot at what's been going on on track, but let's go into the virtual world, something we've been very used to in Formula 1 over the past couple of decades, a driver-in-loop simulators. Alfa Romeo on the brink of being able to use their system, which was acquired in 2019, as a, as a proper tool for development now after spending some time working on the correlation. Ferrari have got their new state-of-the-art simulator housed in a new building that's going to be focused on 22 development after the break. So how important do you think tools like this will be for the 2022 cars given currently all of the modelling and behaviour is effectively theoretical, isn't it? Because there's no real-world cars to correlate to. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely a crucial point, and it's um, it's a, a big reason for, um, why Sauber or Alpha or whatever they, they, they have been over the years has, has fallen back. Um, because it, in, that, in that period when they were most starved of, of investment, when they almost went out of business, um, before the current owners came in, that was that was when everybody was uh, really ramping up the um, the, the resource on uh, driver and loop simulators because of the the, the advantages that it, it gives. But um, it it doesn't just instantly switch on and give you an advantage. It has to be worked on for a very very long time. And um, Alpha were you know they, they they were saying basically last year they because of all the the challenges, all the economic challenges, they they just didn't even look at it. It was it was basically not not used, um, even though they, they had it they had it there physically. Um, so yes, it, it's going to be interesting to see how much that brings when, it, when now they they bring it online. And Ferrari is sort of a, looking at generation two of theirs, and uh, because as in everything, the the technology is moving on all the time, and um, it, it's it's getting better and better. So. Yeah, they're they're quite confident that there's um there's a there's a lot to be found in theirs, which is not going to be used at all for this year's car. It's it's purely for the twenty twenty two onwards. The thing uh, the thing about it really Ed, is is that you're the the simulated the tool is just a tool. Um, it's all about the data you can feed into it, and I think for uh, for anybody that's just switching the the machine on, you it takes a long time to get confidence in the tool. Um, and it can lead you down the garden path just as much as anything. For example, the, the new tires, the you know the the, the um, eighteen inch rims, uh, the different sidewall, the characteristics. Not only just the stiffness of that, but the characteristics with steering lock are going to be completely different. How the tire flexes, you know, we we see it on TV now. The amount of movement you get on the tread laterally whenever the car you know is loaded up, um, and you know all that is, is part of that simulation tool. If you get it hundred percent, fantastic. But it's so difficult to model all that stuff. And to be honest, even even now, I don't think any team does model it to that to the level. The deflection of the rear tire and the diffuser area makes such a massive difference to to what how the diffuser works um, with that that movement. We we've seen seen for years, you know, with the with the current cars connecting the diffuser sides up to the sort of low pressure behind the rear tire increases the performance of the diffuser. 
The thing is, the rear tire is not in that, same, in that position um, all the time, especially whenever it's loaded up laterally. And also next year with the 18-inch rims, the, the rear tire is going to be in a different position again. So very, very difficult until you really get some real track data and some correlation data to actually make some use of it, I think. Even it doesn't matter who you are, if you're Ferrari, it's still looking at the same task. And even when it comes to the tyres, although most of the teams have been testing them this year on their mule cars, they generally don't know what they're testing. So you can perhaps get some very general characteristics, but it's going to be really, really vague. So I guess that's that's the interesting point. Mark, remember when the um, uh, the the 2014 cars were coming in with the um, the V6 turbo hybrid engines? Remember people talking about driving it in the simulators and coming up with all sorts of weird and wonderful things you might do with gear selection, etc. And of course, once the real cars run, it's much more conventional. So I guess it does show how kind of experimental you can get when you're trying to learn about these cars digitally effectively yeah it's like anything at the at the, the very beginning of the learning process you have an almost infinity of possibilities and uh, very quickly narrows down to what the most productive path is and then you get uh, working on just ext- you know extracting the most from a, a, a smaller a smaller margin and it all becomes much more intricate it's just like um, any new technology that's that's how the advances tend to happen that's, that tends to be the pattern yeah and it's, it's interesting we're starting to hear a few drivers giving a little bit of feedback about the the experimental 22 stuff they've done but i don't think anyone's really um got too thorough an idea at this stage but they will as the as the year goes on uh, well obviously the simulator we can connect to our to our next topic because it's uh, it's drivers adapting and obviously the simulator driving loop simulator is one of the tools for that gary but it's been a really big talking point this season hasn't it been drivers adapting to new cars after moving teams obviously daniel ricardo is the big talking point we talked about him quite a bit on our last podcast but it, it hasn't always been this this way has it so why is it proving to be so difficult are the cars really so esoteric and specific today compared to, I don't know, 20 years ago? Yeah, I think the cars have got more and more um, developed in a direction to suit their driver, a driver, whatever you like to call it. I mean, if Fernando Alonso has just been talking about some of his characteristics that he likes from the car and the fact that we've always seen Fernando with the steering wheel. Um, you know, he turns the car in very abruptly and puts quite a lot of steering lock on it and then he feels the front end from that tyre. And if, it, if the front end gets lighter then he knows the car's understeering and if the front end gets heavier, he's, no, he's ready for the rear end stepping out. He's done that all his sort of career. A lot of other drivers, if you ask them, and I have asked drivers, how do you know the car's understeering? Um, a lot of them don't. You know, it's, it's when the load on their shoulder would reduce. I mean, I remember Eddie Irvine, we we built a steering rack that had a um, rising rate in it so that basically, you, you know, for the fast corners, you just had to turn it a little bit. But then for the slower corners... Um, you, you didn't have to turn it as much because the, the rate rose. Um, and as far as he was concerned, that was less understeer. But it was only because he had more steering lock on the car. So, you know, it's very, very difficult how a driver perceives what the car is doing. Um, I think we're seeing a good a good example of it this year with driver changes because Danny Ricardo, you know, he, he got on top of things at, at Renault. Um, but it wasn't, it took him a while, I suppose, at Renault to get on top of things. And he's now gone to McLaren and he's struggling to get on top of it. You know, McLaren, we just talked about their performance. 99.9% of that has come from uh, from Lando Norris. Dan, Daniel's suffering because he, 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 the car characteristics don't seem to suit him. Um, but, he, you know, he's got all the data. He knows how Lando goes in on the brakes and turns the steering and does everything, you know. But, but he can't get himself just to copy that. It doesn't seem to work 
completely for him. So he needs to get the feeling in the car. And Fernando was saying about you know changing the steering rack and how the steering rack feel was there. Again, Kimi Räikkönen is another driver who really, really does concentrate a lot on the feeling of the steering. And whenever he started driving for Lotus, as it was then, you know, he spent a lot of time, or they spent a lot of time, trying to change the steering rack characteristics to to give him the feedback he needed. So it's all the subtle little details. And I think because everything has got so um, complicated, I suppose you might call it, how you drive the car, the characteristics of the, the um, regeneration, corner entry, you know, the, the braking, the rear axle being half electrical braking, half disc braking or whatever, or maybe even 75% electrical braking and 25% disc braking and the front all being disc braking and characteristics of temperature change on the discs on the front is a massive thing. Characteristics of temperature change on the rear is not. So there's a lot of things going on <coughs> that have made the cars much more complicated to drive and to just get the car into the corner because you, you know, obviously when you're driving, go along a straight, you have to slow down to get into the corner. I think if you took any driver where there's just a nice, quick, like Cops Corner, for example, let's say, where you arrive at it, you arrive and drive as such, nothing's really happening too big. Uh, I think that sort of corner is, most drivers could drive any car through there, but it's when you get the complicated car corners where you're you know, recharging the battery pack on the braking and you're trying to turn it in on the brakes to keep the recharge as long as possible, all that sort of stuff. Um, then it becomes more and more complicated. And it has been interesting to track the progress, Mark, because some of the other drivers who've moved, it took Vettel a little bit of time with the Aston Martin. He's still a little bit up and down, but his peaks have been have been pretty strong this year. Carlos Sainz adapted fairly well. So is do, do we have to assume that the that the ease of adapting is kind of proportional to the how how uh, unusual the cars are, shall we say, that the McLaren is particularly unusual, or do we have to put the kind of focus on the drive and say, well, actually, say, science has done a much better job of adapting to the Ferrari than Ricardo has to the McLaren, or, as always, is it a bit of both? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it is a bit of both, and um, I think there is some truth in the fact that the McLaren is a slightly different car to the others in the pack. We, we referenced it earlier uh, technically, but I think it's, it's um, by all accounts, a little bit different in its characteristics as well. Carlos Sainz referenced it and, uh, you know, he infamously <laughs> bumped into Daniel and said, what do you think? It's a bit different, eh? And, and Daniel was saying, yeah, I wish you'd told me before. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I think um, it's, it, ultimately it is down the driver to adapt to the car, but um, there are varying degrees of difficulty in, in doing that. So when you say one driver's done it, so why can't the other? Well, the, the one driver who's done it, his, his task may have been slightly simpler. So you're not comparing like with like, probably. So what do you do, Gary, if you're the technical director and you've got a driver who you know is good, but just isn't isn't in tune with the car? How much of it is changing the car, how much of it is shaking some sense into the driver and getting them to do your bidding? You get them by the throat, pin them, <coughs> pin them against the garage wall and uh, explain the facts of life to them. That, uh, <laughs> no. Um, it's motivational I mean, techniques. I like that. Yeah, you, have to, uh, you have to accept that everybody's different. Yeah, that's step one. But, you know, to be honest, the guy that brings the return to you, as far as lap time is concerned, will always float to the top as far as listening to them and thinking about how you can make the car better in that set of characteristics. Um, it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, you, you'll try your hardest for the other driver, but you won't give up your understanding of how you make the car faster just because the other driver 
isn't happy with the situation. I've had drivers say, oh, you know, when I drove for X, Y, Z, you know, that, that their car did this or their car did that. And you have no real idea why, because you've got your own, you know, philosophy. You're following down the road. Your driver that you work with has got his philosophy. He's bought into it. It's a, it's a bit like Verstappen and Red Bull. That's That seems to be the extreme out there, I think, where, you know, he... he he buys into the fact of Adrian Newey generating the package that he does, or Adrian Newey and his people, um, and he's adapted to that philosophy, and Adrian's adapted to Verstappen's philosophy, and the both of them are going down the same path. So, you know, if somebody else comes in and, and, and can't do it, then it's it's really not the philosophy of the company to, to change direction. They need to adapt to it. And, that, you know, I think we're seeing Sergio Perez at the moment I think he's brought some information to Red Bull. He's adapting to it reasonably well, but not not as well as I would hope um, a professional, well-experienced driver would. Um, and the same for, for Daniel Ricciardo. I think if you look at Carlos Sainz going into the Ferrari, you know we've always said that Leclerc is, is seriously fast, especially on a qualifying lap. But Sainz is up there with him, so the Ferrari must be a reasonably benign car to uh, to to do that. So, but at the end of the day, they're not winning races at the moment. So, it's whenever they make their car to the level of being able to win races, will will one of the two of those guys get left behind? It's um, it's only time will tell. Yeah, I think in the case of Red Bull, I think Verstappen, like the greatest drivers tend to be, is very adaptable. So, I, I suspect you could probably throw him in just about anything and he get on top of it relatively quickly. Although. It's difficult to know because he's always driven Red Bull machines in Formula One. So, yeah, interesting to see how things change next year when the regulations change. Well, Mark, all three of F1's biggest teams, Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull, have complained to a certain extent about the impact of accident damage under the the cost cap. Uh, Ferrari and Red Bull in particular were suggesting that there could be some way to compensate them for it or give cost cap exemptions for accident damage. This idea that a rival team that causes an accident should pay for for damage done, which I imagine McLaren were pleased wasn't there for the seventy three British Grand Prix with uh, Jody Schechter's uh, making sure <laughs> Jody Schechter making sure work most of the field. But do you have any sympathy for this position? It's only become an issue in the cost cap era when the big teams, uh, when the accident damage has prevented the big teams from being able to spend as much as they want on making the car go faster. Um, for most of the teams on the grid, that's always been the case. It's always been the case that accident damage impacts upon the development budget. The big teams, the three big teams uh, probably, were able to just not have that as a factor. They'd just spend more. Um, and for the first time, they're, they're having the same limitations as most of the teams on the grid have always had. So I think it's suddenly become an issue. Um, but I think it's just something that you you can't start adapting the cost cap uh regulations which are hugely complex a set of regulations which have taken years to implement uh, just just because um you've had a some teams have had a, a sequence of accidents and um as uh, Gunther Steiner at Haas said I said well what happens if we have um less accidents do we reduce do we reduce the cost cap um so no i think you <laughs> you just got to manage your way around it i don't think we we can start talking about um, you know, having like insurance claims from one team to another and um, uh, cost cap exemptions. I, I think it's um, it's already 
complicated enough. I, I, I think we just uh, got to suck it up. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fairly ridiculous argument from the big teams as well. And, and actually, it just reflects their own inability to manage it, it properly because they're, they've not had the discipline, perhaps. And it's not as if they won't have gone into the season with a damage contingency. They'll have had a, a X amount of cash expected to spend. And what they want to do is pull back on some of that and throw that into to car development or whatever. So, yeah, very little sympathy. I, I imagine Gary is somebody who spent a reasonable chunk of your F1 career with smaller to middling teams budget-wise. I, I imagine you were inundated with... Uh, team bosses from bigger teams offering to pay for damage they'd done to your cars weren't you um no not quite but um you know at the end of the day it's it's one of those sort of situations as you say you've got to build in a contingency plan for what your sort of normal accident damage would be um it does become a bit more difficult when you have a budget cap and that budget cap as as marcus just said it, that budget cap probably affects three four teams in the pit lane and the other six you know we'll just dream about having that much money anyway so you know they've always they've always had a budget cap, so they've always had to to work within it. Um, and to be honest, you know ninety percent of the accidents, or maybe eighty percent of the accidents, happen to those smaller teams where they're inexperienced or inexperienced drivers. They're battling in the middle of the field. You know there's there's a lot less accidents up front, uh, except for this year. But I'm, I'm happy to say because obviously this year's been a fairly vocal point up the front there with incidents and accidents, but. Um, I don't think there's any way to, to standardise it. Maybe at the end of the day, you know, each team should nominate um, the the price of their chassis, so that you know you get Mercedes saying their chassis is worth you know a million pounds, and you get um, whoever Alfa Romeo saying their chassis is worth you know three hundred thousand pounds or something, and then you find a nice happy compromise in there, and you say, okay, well if you're you know the chassis are all they've all got a chip in, and they're all nominated. If you have an accident that's that the stewards have decided was was generated by another driver, then you know you can have this X amount of money um, on top of your budget cap, but you can't use that chassis again. So you know you have to use a new chassis, and we've averaged it out that the chassis cost six hundred thousand. So you can have six hundred thousand on top of your your budget cap. But it gets complicated, as Mark says, and you know it's one of those sort of situations where we put a lot of pressure on the stewards to allocate blame to somebody. You know, how do you allocate blame to that that incident at Silverstone with um, Verstappen and Hamilton? Whenever the you know the, the Stewarts got hauled up because they allocated blame to to Hamilton, or the percentage of blame went to Hamilton for for causing the accident. But it's not it's a different deal altogether if you're if you're allocating that blame relative to a huge a huge financial sum as well. So um, it's not easy, and I think it's better to leave it alone. Yeah, I'm sure the stewards wouldn't enjoy having to be insurance assessors on top of uh, the rest of the stuff they uh, they have to do. That would make it quite interesting. But it's interesting you mentioned the chassis there, because I think the chassis are a really good example of where particularly the big teams, all the teams really, have wanted to kind of save money, because for the most of the teams, they've carried over the chassis. So Mercedes and Red Bull are using chassis that were built last year, which wasn't covered by the cost cap. So there's things they want to do that they they just don't want to have the extra outlay. So I think that's where it's rooted in, isn't it? It's the fact that they think, oh, we've got a few things we can save here. We might get through and then you lose a chassis and suddenly, yeah, that, that is going to take a, a six-figure sum out of, uh, out of your cost cap allocation. Yeah, it is, it is a big impact and it's also a big impact as far as manpower is concerned and you know, the manufacturing time of it. So it's the, you know, it's the same carbon people that will be making the chassis that will be making front wings and bits and pieces like that. So if you suddenly need a new chassis because it's been written off, it can hurt further down the line with other stuff. So, uh, yeah, using last year's chassis is important. I mean, 
Next year is a clean sheet of paper um, in more ways than one, but it's a clean sheet of paper as far as the cars are concerned, as far as everything is concerned. So in reality, it's in the interests of all of the teams, and this includes the big teams, to manufacture their components as cheaply as possible. You know, step back on that material spec a little bit, just, you know, just reduce the price of your chassis by 10, 15, 20% if you can. Because if you just go for the ultimate performance from the materials, because you can make it, you know, a kilogram or two kilograms lighter, um, then you can very easily then, you know, outspend your, your budget cap. So at the end of the day, it's, it's a clean sheet of paper for a lot of reasons, performance-wise, everything, but and overtaking, but it's also a clean sheet of paper to not be caught up in this must spend as much as possible in the interest of performance. There is another another thing to take into account there. I guess, Mark, it also reflects the new facts of life for the big teams, doesn't it? Because there's all sorts of areas where they're having to cut back and do things more efficiently. They don't have the old advantage of it, which which is kind of why my feeling is just that they, they just need to suck it up and deal with it as, as various smaller teams who haven't had a more disproportionate share of F1's revenue for for seven years or whatever it was under the, the last Concord to, to help them. So it's just very hard to, to, to really share their frustration isn't it yeah and it's it's interesting listening to some of the top teams um given this new constraint of the cost cap um their first reaction is uh, let's throw some people at how we most take take the most um efficient route through this cost cap which is you know just incurring more expense in itself but uh yeah it's it's i think it's just um a, a, a bit of a, a reset um, a brain reset for those teams that have um, traditionally been able to just uh, chase performance and not have to think about anything else, uh, but it, um, I'm sure they'll uh, quick, quick, very quickly adapt. I'm quite looking forward to the next time a Ferrari wipes someone out and someone from another team delivers uh, an invoice to Mattia Bonotto for it. So I think what what goes around comes around sometimes on on these things. But uh, for our final topic, Gary, let's go back to the the title fight. There's been plenty of talk about the Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen side, but it's also Mercedes versus Red Bull, isn't it? Adrian Newey recently talked of what he called behind-the-scenes politicking and lobbying against our car. A thinly-veiled reference to the complaints about flexi-wings, pit-stop sensors, and all manner of other things coming from the uh, the Mercedes side. I think, in this case, you do have some sympathy with that position, don't you? Yeah, I do have a lot of sympathy, to be honest. It's it's a, it's a sad thing to, to, to look at. Whenever you think that Mercedes, since 2014, have been you know the dominant team, the dominant car, the dominant drivers, the dominant everything. Um, and nobody, I don't think anybody, sat, stepped up there and said, oh, well, you know, they're doing things that aren't right. They're, they're, you know, they're, there's no way they can get that power from the engine because we can't. Uh, They've, they've just taken it on the chin and decided they've got to get on with it. And Red Bull's been one of those teams. So I think it's wrong now that, that Mercedes have been caught, let's say, um, by Red Bull. And everything and every time that Red Bull actually get the advantage, which is very, very small, um, it's it's always there's always a reason. You know, Bakai, for example, Bakai, for example, with the tire pressures. You know, they'd find a solution to running the tires lower. If it right, might be right. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it still seems to be that Mercedes want to point the finger at, at something that's making it wrong for them. Like the start of the season when the regulations were changed to to scupper the, the lower rate cars. Um, but whenever Mercedes did introduce the the sort of floor 
more conventional floor design, front corner floor design, i.e. that you know, Alfa Tori had from the beginning of the year, the car steps up its performance by a, by a reasonable amount. So I think I would, if I was Adrian Newey, I would feel a bit uh, sort of there's a few knives there head in my direction just because the fact that Mercedes don't like to, don't accept that competition is competition and uh, they, they want to find fault in somebody else just because they're doing better. Again, it's one of those sort of situations where sometimes you have to look at yourself before you start you know, pointing the finger at everybody else. And I think it's, uh, it's degrading for the championship for that to be happening because it makes people feel bad about the racing in, the, in its own little way because they, you know, the, the viewer doesn't understand. The viewer just looks and thinks, well, I've heard that they're cheating, you know. And that's that's not correct. That's not, not if if suddenly Ferrari introduced these engine parts, they say new engine parts for the next two races, and they're twenty k's quicker on the straight than than anybody else in, the, in their own pool, and win the races, everybody would be saying, "Oh, you know, it's well done, Ferrari." Or would you be saying they've got to be cheating? You know, that, that's wrong. There's competitions there, and you've got to go and, and, and join that competition. And as I say, Mercedes have been there for the, since two thousand fourteen, right at the front of the show. So I think it's wrong to degrade anybody else that's doing a good job now. Mark, do you think this this is just the consequence of when we have a really close battle between a couple of teams at the front? <laughs> it always, or often at least, tends to go this way, doesn't it? We've seen it in the past between Ferrari and McLaren, all sorts of kind of dueling teams. When it's so tight, they're just looking for everything, aren't they? And, you know, we've seen Red Bull slightly embarrassed themselves with their review attempt, didn't they? It, well, it didn't make them look particularly good. And <laughs> you've sort of got examples of both Mercedes and Red Bull perhaps not covering themselves in glory with some of their public pronouncements. Is that just what happens when everyone gets subjected to this season-long pressure cooker environment? I think so, yeah. I think it gets antagonistic. It, it, it's unusual if it's a very close uh, title fight for it not to get antagonistic. And um, there's it, it, it like a, I call it competitive paranoia creeps in, and it's what Gary was talking about there, where where you're thinking, well, we can't do that. So how have they been able to do it? So and and it 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 it, it becomes um, sort of a it, it, one side triggers the other in, into doing it, and it 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 just sort of all just sort of flares up into this um this this big sort of uh, fairly fairly unpleasant sort of vibe. Um, so yeah, it's not healthy, but it it it's um it's it goes back a long way. It, it, you know, I remember how antagonistic Ferrari and McLaren were in that '76 season, where um, Gary was on um, on McLaren, uh, working at McLaren at the time. So, yeah, it is just part of the sport, unfortunately. There you go, Gary. Mark's implicating you in this now. No, <laughs> um, I was actually at Brabham at that point in time, but uh, I know what you mean, Mark. But the thing it's, it's it seems to be is you know, Total Wolf on many many occasions have said. You know, we're we're working to the extreme. We're working, you know, flat, absolutely flat out. We can't we can't do any more. Well, so is everybody. That's the problem, isn't it? Everybody is is working flat out within their own little set of circumstances, right down to the fact of of Williams or Haas or no matter what the team is, they're working within their little set of circumstances, absolutely flat out to achieve what they're achieving. And if somebody finds that you know magic switch then so be it. They're, they're doing a great job. But, you know, compliment them on it. Say, oh, Red Bull have done a really good job this year, but we're still going to go for them and, and we're still going to beat them. It's a whole different way of putting it, you know, and because and, that's what Mercedes need to do. You know, if Red Bull have done a good job, 
so be it. Good. Well done, chaps. Now let us find that solution and uh, just work harder. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes in the second half of the season, whether they go with that uh, that more sporting approach or whether they get more wound up by the, the competitive paranoia. I think it's it's going to be one of those ones that, that runs and runs. But the fact is, it's the stopwatch and what happens on track that decides it. That's the, the great thing about uh, motorsports. Well, thanks to Gary and Mark for your insight. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for more from Mark, Gary and the rest of the team. And if you need some more podcasts to fill in the August break, it's well worth checking out Bring Back V10s, which delves into classic F1 stories. The latest episode is all about Nigel Mansell's return with Williams in 1994. That features Karin Chandok, and I think uh, Gary and Mark were just recording a future episode to Bring Back V10, so they'll be turning up there in a, in a later episode as well. Do stay with us on the Race F1 podcast, as we'll be back soon with everything you need to know as F1 prepares to come back to life next week ahead of the Belgian Grand Prix. <laughs>